This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. Uh, I think now that the the cat is out of the bag, many patients aren't going to accept going back to live visit only uh, systems, you know, working moms, busy professionals, older patients who have barriers to getting here or people with social uh, challenges that just make it difficult to get to the doctor's office in the middle of the day. Um, you know, they've all had 15 months of this new paradigm. And, and, and I think, like I said, in Massachusetts, we everybody, I think, has had a telehealth visit um, at least once in the last year if they saw a doctor. This is Gastro Broadcast, presented by Gastrologic. I'm your host, Fred Rosenberg, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. George Dickstein of Greater Boston Gastroenterology. He also serves as chair of the Department of Medicine at his local community hospital. Dickstein is a leading thinker about ways GI practices can enhance their productivity, capturing charges for all the services that GI physicians provide. He gave a great talk nearly two years ago at the Partners in Value Conference, my last in-person meeting before the pandemic, and I'm excited to get an update on what he's been working on in Boston. George, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Thanks, Fred, and thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your career path and how you decided to specialize in GI and in independent practice. Well, friends have been calling me G.I. George since medical school, where I had uh, the privilege of spending six months in my fourth year working with Larry Brandt and Scott Boley, who then were still actively conducting uh, clinical research on ischemic bowel disease and lower G.I. bleeding. Once that experience ended, I I was hooked. Uh, I was attracted to independent G.I. initially out of a desire to provide care for patients close to where they live and work, not miles away at a referral center. And I've really spent my entire career practicing in in community-based medicine. Even though Massachusetts is a small state, you know, and you're never really far from Boston and it's towering meccas like the ones I trained in, uh, 25 years ago and now patients really want to get their care in their own communities and avoid the traffic and tolls and parking of uh, going to Boston. I wanted to be part of that. Um, I wanted to be in the community giving patients the care they deserve. I think these influences combined with an entrepreneurial spirit um, and my work ethic, uh, my wife always says I'll be the hardest worker wherever I ended up, uh, led me to independent GI. Tell us a little bit about your practice and the community you serve. Uh, Greater Boston GI is a seven physician practice with three nurse practitioners. Um, We have one main office and two satellite offices in our surrounding communities. We primarily serve the community and towns around Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, By national standards and with so many groups aggregating, Greater Boston GI might seem small, but for Massachusetts, we're actually on the larger side of independent GI. Most people in medicine know our area from the Framingham Heart Study, Um, We serve an incredibly diverse community, and we really love the mix of pathology and patients that that this mix brings. I tell every one of our new physicians when they join, read up, because we're going to see everything here. That's great. What adjustments did your practice implement during the pandemic to facilitate providing care? Well, I think it's really no exaggeration to say we changed everything. Um, We rapidly moved to telemedicine along with the rest of the Commonwealth, uh, learning on the fly. 
Uh, I think in retrospect, we did a great job staying connected with our patients. Uh, according to former CMS Administrator Verma, Massachusetts actually had the best conversion of telehealth of any of the major Medicare markets. And so if you didn't have telehealth around here, you just weren't keeping up. But, you know, this, this was an unprecedented crisis and no one has a monopoly on ideas. And so, you know, we sought out and met with other like-minded practices locally and nationally uh, to learn what they were doing. We each had two or three telemedicine platforms as none of them seemed to work uh, at any given time. And um, we resorted to telephone visits where we needed. A surprising number of our patients, even those who had like never used any of the um, extra features on their cell phones were able to adapt to Zoom or DoxyMe or Doximity and they allowed FaceTime so that made things easy. Um, unfortunately, we had to place a good number of our office endoscopy and other staff on furlough weeks before the PPP loan program was up and running. Um, Massachusetts shut down pretty early and the federal programs hadn't yet caught up. Um, we corralled enough uh, PPE, you know, protective equipment to keep our office infusion services going and our nurses and patients feeling safe. Uh, we met frequently as a group and with our smaller size staff to make sure everyone was in the loop. Uh, you know, we kept at it. Um, while we were uh, shut down, we put up plexiglass barriers in sensible places to help the staff feel protected once they could return. We bought HEPA filter machines to put in our common areas and exam rooms. Uh, and we went back to live office visits as soon as the Department of Public Health here let us reopen. Uh, at first, we concentrated on new patients who were over 65, I mean, who were under 65, uh, who were at the, the lower risk, and we all felt strongly we should see and examine our patients where possible. Uh, and now we see all patients who want to be seen live. Um, with uh, great difficulty and, and pulling every string we could, we procured access to rapid turnaround PCR tests so that um, and we could test our patients before elective procedures, which was very important here. Um, although now the AGA is um, is going to be relaxing uh, that advice. Uh, and we invested in, in point of care antigen tests for the office once they were released in September. Um, we still test all of our patient-facing staff, docs, medical assistants, nurses, NPs, checkout staff, as often as they like, but at least once a week by antigen test. We also gave our employees time off to get and recover from their, their vaccine. And we offered gift cards. I have to thank my wife for that idea early on to all who stepped up to be vaccinated. Um, we also discovered that we need to be flexible, that some of the jobs and tasks we always expected to be done nine to five in person in the office can be done off hours or just as well at home. Um, we paid for an upgrade in the internet and telephone capabilities of all of our staff so they can work from home and provided portable notebook computers um, uh, for those who needed them and didn't have good computers at home. On a broader level, we gratefully applied for and took advantage of any and all of the federal programs that were designed to help get businesses through this uh, crazy year. George, I wish we had you on speed dial about a year ago. <laughs> but actually, uh, you've used telehealth even before the pandemic, so you had experience with it, unlike our practice, which we knew nothing about it, and it was quite a struggle at the beginning. 
Yeah, I think um, previously at Greater Boston GI, we used telemed, but we used it sparingly. And to be fair, one might say we were dabbling it in it from 2018 to 2020, learning what payers allowed the visits and what payers didn't. We also use it to avoid canceling all our patients on snow days, you know, when, when uh, everybody had to stay home or blizzards. Um, and, and the patients really seem to uh, appreciate it. Um, you know, it's no exaggeration, I think, to say that telehealth opportunities have now exploded, you know, in Massachusetts and nationally. Um, but really broad adoption of telemedicine before was a challenge because of the draconian uh, site of service restrictions from CMS. And I think all of us hope that they won't be reinstated once the healthcare emergency uh, is over or the extensions uh, finally end. Uh, I think now that the, the cat is out of the bag, many patients aren't going to accept going back to live visit only uh, systems, you know, working moms, busy professionals, older patients who have barriers to getting here or people with social uh, challenges that just make it difficult to get to the doctor's office in the middle of the day. Um, you know, they've all had 15 months of this new paradigm. And, and, and I think, like I said, in Massachusetts, we everybody, I think, has had a telehealth visit. Um, at least once in the last year if they saw a doctor. Uh, it's a little bit distressing to see that expert testimony in Washington is mixed and some experts and representatives laud the praises of telehealth and others are really fixed on the issues surrounding fraud and abuse. Um, but there are media issues about equity, broadband access, um, and um, the places where telehealth really, you know, shouldn't replace live visits. So uh, I, I think we're all in for a transition, and 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 we're we were enthusiasts, and now we're even greater enthusiasts of the benefits it brings. Uh, colorectal cancer screening rates plummeted during the pandemic. Tell us about what your practice experienced. Oh, it's been a bumpy road. Uh, because of our very early and very severe COVID surge in Massachusetts, the DPH issued an abrupt and complete elective procedure moratorium in mid-March uh, that included both hospitals and ambulatory uh, care centers. And in Massachusetts, that led to one of the steepest drop-offs in colorectal cancer and all cancer screenings in, in the country. Uh, late in the summer last year, they told us that uh, colorectal cancer screenings dropped 86% uh, in that period, which is just you know an extraordinary drop off. And I don't know that we've fully caught up. Uh, you know, Greater Boston GI was uh, no exception to what everybody else in the country uh, uh, saw. But when we were allowed to reopen, we designed a slow and purposeful and we, we, we think well thought out reopening plan. Uh, we put videos of the precautions we were taking on at our AR, at our ambulatory surgical centers and our hospitals and in our practice on all of the different websites. Um, uh, we learned how and where to COVID test our patients. We used every contact we could find to garner sufficient PPE. Late in the summer, the state actually came through and gave independent practices their um, their oversupply, which which really helped. Um, and we took the time to talk directly with our patients who had doubts and reservations, some of whom still have doubts and reservations about coming into, into the hospital or even an ambulatory center or the office. Um, October and November were promising months. We started to see volume uh, build up. We were catching up on the delayed cases. And then in the winter, the state shut us down again. 
we feared that would last a while, but um, it only lasted two weeks, not two and a half months. And this time, ambulatory centers were allowed to stay open. But it did add to community and patient hesitancy. They, they sort of took a step back after having taken a step forward. Um, I read recently uh, in one of the Becker uh, ASC publications that two-thirds of independent GI practices have seen a substantial decline in patient volume, and many of those practices think it's going to be permanent. I'm an optimist when it comes to these things and always feel that where there's a, a will, there's a way. Um, we haven't seen that kind of permanent uh, decline. Um, and. Um, we're actually above par from our pre-pandemic office volume and our procedure volumes for the last three months are now the same as the three months just before the pandemic. So um, I'm hopeful that the rest of the country doesn't see that permanent decline because we're, we're certainly not seeing it. Yeah, we've seen the same uh, increase in volumes the last three or four months back to and some months even ahead of our 2019 volumes. Um, a surge in screening could be anticipated because the screening gauge has been lowered to 45. Is your practice preparing for this in any special way? Well, on the one side, we know that our um, our major societies have endorsed giving patients more options for screening and um, lowering the age to 45 is probably going to lead to more patients uh, picking uh, one of those options maybe not always colonoscopy. You know, the mantra that the societies are saying is that any screening is better than no screening and we're never going to get to 100% colonoscopies. Um, and despite our own personal reservations about this, you know, we know that stool-based tests are on the rise and, you know, some companies have made public their intent to market these strategies to unconventional groups like OBGYN practices uh, that see a lot of healthy 45-year-old women. Uh, I think for GI, we have to accept that... Um, these tests will be with us going forward and do our best to ensure that they're used appropriately and for improved indications. Um, you know, we've all seen patients with histories of polyp or family histories of colon cancer get these tests, and that's just not appropriate. And we should tell patients and our colleagues when that happens. And we also need to have evidence-based answers to our PCPs and our patients about why colonoscopy is still the better option. And, you know, accept that patients uh, are going to pick the test that's best for them, and it won't always be colonoscopy. But in, in terms of colonoscopy volume itself, we've recruited a new uh, doctor to help uh, our own volume uh, demands. We've expanded the hours available uh, for booking at our ambulatory surgical centers. There's actually a waiting list for providers who want Saturday slots now. Um, we've pushed our hospital uh, to do the same in terms of expanding at least their weekday hours. Um, in terms of the 45-year-old uh, uh, advice PCPs will have a lag in the rollout to their younger patients and that will also give us some time. Uh, the real problem with expanding hours and capacity is staff. We, we just can't find people and I know that's all over the country that um, you know it almost seems no matter how much more you offer there we just can't get people to even respond to ads um, and uh, you know the answers to that are complex and, and not always the easy um, uh, stories that, that we hear and we're hopeful that you know as the, the kids go back to school next year and primarily women who were so affected by this uh, pandemic can uh, return to the workplace will be more successful in, in, in staffing to the demands we expect. Uh, did you learn or discover new ways of doing things in the past year that will likely continue as on as your practice life returns to normal? 
Well, I think so. Um, I, I, I hope so, too. Um, we certainly communicate more often and more regularly with our staff and with our providers. Um, we're all telemed enthusiasts, as I talk about, and we'll keep this as uh, a growing part of our practices uh, as long as Medicare and MassHealth, which is our state Medicaid plan, and the commercial markets you know, remain supportive. Um, we've learned to uh, focus our docs and our NPs on the things that they need to do, and we've trained and delegated our staff to support everything they're capable of doing so that um, everybody is really working at the at the maximum extent of their capacity. Um, I think all of us really appreciate our staff now, probably more than we did before the pandemic. They came back to work before vaccines. Um, they reused their PPE when the supply was limited. Uh, they adapted and abided by our infection control policies. Um, they came to work every day in patient-facing roles when the community penetration of COVID in Framingham and the rest of Middlesex County was one of the highest in the country. Um, we've also increased our pay scale to be a more attractive employer. Uh, in retrospect, maybe our wage scale was a little stagnant and we want to have the best people and we want to retain them. Um, while a, a dollar to an hour does add up across many employees and over many years, we made the decision to invest in our staff to have them feel uh, like they were valued, which we, we valued them, but we wanted them to feel more valued. And um, we just, as I talked about uh, before, we, we discovered that we need to be more flexible and, and move some of the jobs to home or to off hours uh, when they could be done that way. Um, and our staff um, appreciated that we were willing to invest in their internet upgrades or give them the uh, notebook computers to get that work done. You've spoken a great deal about how physicians should be billing for all the activities uh, that are done in the course of the day that we often overlook. Can, can you tell us about that? Well, um, it, it, it's a long hour. A long answer. How much time do, do we have? This is among my, my favorite uh, topics. Uh, let me start by saying any practice with two or more providers needs to get, delegate one of those providers to keep up with coding and compliance. I'm a fan of practices compensating their colleagues for the non-patient work they do uh, to keep the practice running. Someone needs to commit to learning to code and bill for all the things that CMS and, and the commercial carriers permit us to bill for. It can't just be something you expect your practice manager to do or to learn by osmosis. Um, they're enormously talented, but um, they don't really know all of our capabilities. We make the effort of sitting down with all of our new docs and, and, and explaining to them the current iteration of coding uh, so that they have a sense of um, what it takes uh, to uh, uh, create a note that's, that's going to be um, uh, coded appropriately and is compliant with what uh, uh, the, the regulatory agencies and Medicare and the AMA expect. Um, the ACG and all the societies really have terrific independent practice resources, but someone needs to read them and reread them. You know, for that matter, the Pediatric Society and the Family Practice Society might have some of the best resources for independent practice of any of them. Um, and, and all you have to do is search to learn. They, they, they have the same office codes we do. They have the same kinds of in-office procedures we do, and they're, they're well ahead of us. The Pediatric Societies were well ahead of us on uh, telephone visits and telemedicine visits. And I learned how to bill and code for those from the Pediatric Society literature. 
Um, you know, we uh, we live and die by our ability to code well and in a compliant way. Um, you know, learning about chronic care management, visiting nurse oversight, transition and care visit timing, and other easy to roll out coding programs takes time and effort. And you've got to educate all your docs, and you've got to educate your 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 nurse practitioner staff, and your nursing staff, and your office staff, and um, and they have to um, remember to keep up and offer those things. And many small practices just don't have anybody who's committed to update their charge sheets each year. They're not adapting quickly enough. Telehealth visits were allowable charges for CMS and for many commercial plans. They paid less than they, they did during the pandemic, but they were allowable. And, and, and I know from the talks I've given and some of the consulting I've done that most doctors just didn't know this um, until, until um, those resources were made available to them. CMS publishes many great provider-oriented summaries on the Medicare Learning Network. Um, you know, and where goes Medicare? So it goes much of the commercial market, but you just need to take the time to read uh, and disseminate and, you know, start to code for these things and you'll make mistakes and, and um, you'll, you'll see some commercial payers cover many, many uh, um, programs and others don't cover any and um, you'll learn to uh, adapt about it. But, but if someone's not taking the time uh, to educate themselves on behalf of the group, uh, about all of these programs, you are going to suffer financially because there's a treasure trove of legal, compliant uh, opportunities out there, and 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 every practice should should educate themselves about it. Thank you. Let, let's turn to a topic that is beginning to impact independent practice: new physician recruitment. Many GI practices are responding to this physician shortage by increasing their use of mid-level providers. What are your thoughts about the best utilization of mid-level providers? in both the office and hospital settings? Well, um, we've used um, independently licensed non-physician practitioners. We, we don't call them mid-levels anymore. Uh, from day one at, at Greater Boston GI. Um, I have to thank our founding partner, Steve Fine, uh, for his commitment to having nurse practitioners in the practice, uh, really, as long as he's been uh, in practice and, and, and they've grown along with us. Uh, the, the nurse practitioners, and we've had PAs as well, uh, see our outpatients and consult on our inpatients in the hospital. The economics are sound. The patient acceptance is very good. And I mean, many of the PCPs have nurse practitioners and PAs in their practices already. And so it's not a foreign concept to most of the patients. Um, it does take time to create knowledgeable um, non-physician experts with comfort in GI and liver disease, um, often more time than, than, than some docs may feel is worth the investment, but I assure you it is. Um, you know, I, I think our most experienced nurse practitioners can rival any office-based gastroenterologist in, in their acumen and, and, and their capabilities. Um, the time we invest in training pays dividends uh, in customer service and our bottom line. It lets us book patients with shorter notice because some of our docs are really booked out quite a bit. Um, and, and, and within a year, you're going to see that return on uh, investment. We've also taught our NPs who want to learn uh, how to do anoscopy and, and office-based banding uh, procedures so that they can be part of of, um, of the, the therapeutics that are, are within what they feel is their scope of practice. And our nurse practitioners um, see our hospital consults with us as well. We, we still round on every one of those patients, but um, it gets a clinician at the bedside sooner. It gives us the ability to keep 
our outpatient schedules um, uh, with a reduced but not uh, fully canceled day. Um, and uh, it, it, it actually turned out to be a win-win clinically and uh, financially for us. We spoke a bit ago about uh, changes in colorectal cancer screening. Um, innovations in that screening, including so-called liquid biopsy blood tests are now being developed. Many practices are thinking about ways to decrease their reliance on colonoscopy as their principal revenue generator. What opportunities are you considering and what other services should GI physicians consider adding in the office setting? Well, um, we have been offering a whole panoply of, of ancillary revenue generating services uh, in an effort to integrate care and, and make it easier for our patients to get all the care they need uh, in, in one site. And I'd encourage every GI practice, you know, to do that. Colonoscopy is not going to go away. I know there are some doomsday uh, uh, projections out there, but, um, you know, many people are, are still accustomed to having their colonoscopies. And so that's still going to be part of, of what we are. But you need to explore um, opportunities that, that patients uh, respond well to. We, we currently offer breath tests, pill camera, liver elastography, bone density, obesity management, infusions, clinical research studies, in-office diagnostic ultrasound, anal rectal manometry uh, in our office. We have a licensed um, College of American Pathologist Certified Pathology Lab uh, uh, for our ambulatory surgical pathology volume. And, and we're only one small practice in Middlesex County in, in Massachusetts. Just think of the scale of things that a practice of 25 or 250 uh, uh, can achieve. Um, in terms of, of, of new um, service lines, we're looking at genetic uh, counseling services with or without a national uh, partner, uh, pelvic floor physical therapy, which is becoming a big part of how um, uh, constipation and, and, and pelvic floor disorders are being managed. Um, and as a first foray into clinical lab, um, we're looking at the molecular stool testing uh, assays that have come out that are easy and quick and turn around in 24 hours. Long term, we'll probably be looking at um, at, uh, at a full clinical laboratory uh, for our blood tests and, and other services, but that's probably not until uh, 2022. What advice do you have for early career physicians as they consider their professional pathway? I think uh, the first thing to remember is that passing your GI boards is the first step in your journey, not, not the final step in your journey. And so you have to remember the hard work it took to get to med school, land a good residency, stand out enough to get a GI fellowship, or, or to master ERCP or EUS or whatever your other uh, unique skills are. Take that drive, the energy, the acumen, the intellect, intellect and keep moving forward. Um, no challenge you face professionally is really going to be harder than, you know, organic chemistry or the first national board exam. You know, you put the energy and effort into that. You need to put the energy and effort into the rest of your career. And I think we're all learning to stay open minded and, and flexible. The pandemic has taught us a lot about open mindedness and flexibility. And, and, and 
everybody worries so much about their first job and the, and the slight nuances of how much uh, income they're going to get or, or vacation they're going to get in their first two years. But you know that that job's unlikely to be your last job, and we all have really long careers. And sometimes uh, being patient uh, pays off because some goals take time to achieve. There is no private practice anymore. We're all accountable to some organization, some payer, some medical staff hierarchy or regulatory body. Um, uh, so if you always wanted to be a clinical educator, but you got 250,000 in student loans, start with the job that helps you pay down your debt fastest and keep your dreams alive and, and look over time to maximize your professional happiness. Um, be willing to take some risks and um, take advantage of some opportunities. Um, and, and what's helped me is try not to look at, at choices as either or, either academic or private practice, either hospital employed or self-employed. Um, independent practice gastroenterology has been very, very good to me professionally and personally. Um, and all the opportunities I have were available to all of my colleagues and all of my peers, you know, all throughout, whether it's, um, you know, building long and lasting patient relationships, feeling connected to uh, a community or a terrific group of peers, teaching medical and PA students, publishing, um, doing clinical research, eventually training residents and, and fellows, whatever your interest is, you can achieve all those things in independent gastroenterology um, and, and, and not feel like you're giving up those dreams if, if they're part of what you wanna do. If what you wanna do is patient care, and that's all you wanna do, terrific, because we need people who just wanna take care of patients and do it well. Um, but I think most of all, remember, you, you probably didn't get here alone. Uh, thank those who sacrificed along with you. Um, get to that dance recital um, and, and uh, never forget your anniversary of Valentine's Day. For sure. I, I think those are, that's probably my best advice. <laughs> You've given us so much terrific information and ideas. Where can people find out more about the kinds of things that uh, go on in Greater Boston Gastroenterology? Well, um, uh, we have a, a website, www.greaterbostongi.com. Um, uh, all of our physicians there are, are, uh, are, are searchable. Um, I'm always available uh, as well to talk to people who are looking for opportunities and uh, and learning how uh, we did some of the things uh, that we've been able to uh, learn. Um, and I look forward to, to hearing from people who, who, who listen in and, and, and the ideas that they have uh, on moving independent practice forward. George, thank you so much for joining us today uh, and giving us really a terrific broadcast. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.